Chapter 18, we have been working through the book of Genesis for a while now, particularly in the story of Abraham at the moment, and uh, we come this morning to Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33, so the second half of the chapter. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is true and powerful and effective, We thank you for your Holy Spirit who goes with your word, who uses your word in our hearts. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would work this morning. Uh, I confess that, that I certainly have no power in myself to do anything with your word. We have no ability to receive your word in our own strength and cause it to bear fruit. We need your spirit to work. And so we pray that your spirit would work this morning to your glory and honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 18, beginning in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know." So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He, he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Well, I have mentioned before that I have a a commentary on the book of Genesis by the Jewish lawyer, Alan Dershowitz. 
Dershowitz has uh, what I would consider, at least from this commentary, a fairly low view of God. Uh, he believes that in our text, Abraham is teaching God a lesson about justice. That's a quote. Uh, you see, according to Dershowitz, quote, God is himself planning to do something terribly unjust. He's going to destroy the innocent along with the guilty, just as he did in the flood, Dershowitz says, will he never learn? Of course, the issue of God's justice is not just a problem for Jewish legal scholars. Lots of people wrestle with God's justice. Uh, perhaps you have read the Old Testament, the story of the flood, the judgments in the wilderness, the wars in Canaan, and something in you has cried out, that's not fair. Now, there are lots of questions you might ask at that point. Um, where does my sense of justice come from? Uh, who am I to talk back to God? Dershowitz really does not like that answer. Uh, but the questions that I would have you consider this morning are, am I reading the story rightly? Uh, do I have the whole picture? Is there something I am misunderstanding, some bit of information I don't have that is causing me to misread the story? It's just a bit of, of interpretive humility. Maybe I don't have the whole picture. Because here's what we're going to see in Genesis 18. Our first point is that God is just. Second, Israel was to demonstrate God's justice. Third, we need more than justice. And fourth, in light of the gospel, pursue justice marked by mercy. So God is just. Israel was to demonstrate God's justice. We need more than justice. In light of the gospel, pursue justice marked by mercy. So first, God is just. Uh, th this, of course, it, it, it is the, the key point of this story. It's also the point that Dershowitz would refute. In fact, it's the point that some would say that Abraham himself was questioning. And so let's look at the story and see what it actually tells us. Three men came to Abraham. Uh, he jumped to action earlier in chapter 18 and showed them traditional Middle Eastern hospitality. Through the course of the story, we realize that, that one of these three men is the Lord, God manifesting himself in human form. Theologians call this an, an epiphany, or if it is the second person of the Trinity, a Christophany, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. After the meal, the three men get up to leave. They, they go out, apparently, to the edge of the valley and look toward Sodom. Abraham, good host that he is, went with them to see them off. And then we get this fascinating monologue, fascinating because it's an internal monologue of God himself in verse 17. Uh, verse 17, God says this, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, we'll come back to the content of God's monologue in a moment, but for now, notice two things. The first is God does decide to reveal to Abraham what he is about to do. Uh, in just a few verses, uh, in just a few chapters, God will call Abraham a prophet. And Amos, Amos chapter 3, verse 7 says, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And that is exactly what we find here, God revealing what he's about to do to Abraham. And three times in scripture, Abraham is called God's friend. Uh, and this revelation here confirms that as well. Uh, Jesus says in John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And so here in this 
uh, chapter, God is treating Abraham as a prophet and a friend, revealing his plans to his friend. Well, what does God reveal? Look at verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. God is going to investigate the reports that he has heard, as it were, uh, to see if they are really as bad as he has heard. Uh, two of the men at this point leave. Uh, we know it's two and that these men are angels because in Genesis 19, verse 1, we read the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, uh, which means, as verse 22 tells us, God remained behind. At this point, Abraham approaches God and begins to intercede. Uh, now, that's not a word that we use every day. It just means to plead on someone else's behalf. Here, Abraham is interceding on behalf of Sodom, asking for God to spare the city on account of its righteous inhabitants, whether they be 50 or 45, 40, 30, 20, or 10. What are we to make of this story? Is God uh, about to judge the righteous along with the wicked? Uh, Does this story confirm the caricatures of the Old Testament God as vindictive and hot-tempered? Does God have anger issues, right? And, And Abraham is trying to straighten them out? Well, slow down and look at the text. Notice what God actually says to Abraham. God tells Abraham what he heard in verse 20 and what he will do in verse 21. Verse 20 says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Now, that word outcry points to the cry of the oppressed. We've already seen it in the book of Genesis, actually. In chapter 4, verse 10, God said to Cain, after he murdered his brother, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Proverbs 21, 13 uses this word to talk about the cry of the poor, Uh, Nehemiah 9.9 uses it to talk about Israel's cry of despair at the Red Sea when they think they're hemmed in and about to be destroyed by the Egyptian army. So this word often refers to to wailing and distress. Uh, What's the point? Sodom was uh, was a place of injustice. People were being abused and mistreated and crying out to God for help. And God, as he always does, hears the cries of the oppressed. He is moved uh, by the tears of the used and abused. This story, rather than presenting God as vindictive, portrays him as merciful, caring for those who cannot care for themselves, watching out for the oppressed and the abused. And yet God doesn't immediately smite Sodom. Why not? Verse 21 says, I will go down to see whether they have done according, altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. What is God saying? He's saying, I'm going to investigate. Are they really as bad as everyone says? And we've seen this, too, multiple times in Genesis. Genesis 3, after the first sin, uh, God asks a question. He says, where are you? And then he says, who told you that you were naked? And then he says, what is this that you have done? In Genesis 4, God says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Genesis 11, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, this brings up a whole other question, doesn't it? Why must God investigate? I mean, doesn't he know already? If God is omniscient, why does he have to find out if the rumors are true? And the answer is is really pretty simple. When God interacts with us, he does so on our level. 
Uh, Notice here in this story, God appears to Abraham in human form. He accepts his hospitality. He walks out to the edge of the Jordan Valley. Well, God doesn't need to do any of those things, but he does in order to interact with Abraham. When God interacts with us, he does so on our level. It's like when an educated adult stoops down to talk to a child. Uh, You you don't bring the full force of your doctoral level vocabulary to bear. You speak simply and lovingly at eye level with the child. God, God condescends. He's not condescending the way we use that term, but he condescends to our level. Uh, To condescend literally means to come down to be with. Now, in that day, as in almost any day, one of the big problems with judgments and justice was people make judgments too fast. We hear a juicy bit of gossip and immediately we draw conclusions. And this is especially bad if you have legal power. It can mean condemning the innocent and punishing the the righteous. And so God repeatedly asks questions. He investigates situations. Is Sodom really as bad as everyone thinks? God is going to get to the bottom of things, so to speak, and find out. Uh, the, The point is this, God's judgments are not based on hearsay and gossip. He judges based on the facts, and he is going to find out the facts here, and then he'll know, and then he will act. Because we are limited, time-bound creatures, God is showing us his justice in a way that we can understand. On a human level, justice comes through investigation, so God investigates to make it clear that his judgments are just. So then notice what God actually says, right? God has heard the outcry of the oppressed. He is merciful and he will investigate to know the truth. He is just. Now Abraham is going to appeal to God not to destroy Sodom, but nowhere is it said that God's plan was to destroy the righteous with the wicked. In fact, God hesitates even to destroy the wicked until he has all the facts. What you will find as you read through scripture is that consistently God has a just reason for his judgments. Uh, Prior to the flood in the book of Genesis, we were told this, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Uh, That's about uh, the most complete statement of human depravity as anywhere in scripture. Every intention, only evil all the time. Later in Genesis 6, we read now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All flesh, corruption, and violence. That was the situation before the flood. The flood was not a rash, hot-headed God with anger issues, but a patient God bringing judgment to those who had filled his good world with violence. And the judgment on Sodom, too, is not a knee-jerk reaction to hearsay, but the careful investigation of a just God. Now, let me ask uh, you, are you quicker to condemn than God is? Uh, Really, think about it for a moment. God was slow to condemn Sodom, a city that is basically synonymous with sin in our vocabulary. But God did not knee-jerk condemn it. He was patient even with them. And so let me ask you honestly, right, how often do you condemn the, the, quote, other side in our culture, whoever that other side is for you? How often do you not simply disagree with their position but demonize their person? Are you quick to condemn or slow to judge like the God of heaven and earth? Now, Sodom is wicked, and God will judge 
At the same time, God will save some out of Sodom. God doesn't indiscriminately judge. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, God spends an entire chapter, chapter 18, telling Ezekiel that he will not punish one person for the sins of another. Rather, the one who does what is right and just will live, but the soul that sins will die. Now, the problem, of course, is that every soul sins. And God's assessment post-flood was not any better than his assessment before the flood. In Genesis 8.21, God says, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And David said in Psalm 51, which we uh, sung earlier, or sung a version of earlier, David said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. It wasn't because his mother was particularly sinful. It's not David's point there. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Paul says, quoting the Psalms in Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. Even Jesus' assessment of humanity in Matthew 7.11 is you who are evil. God's assessment of humanity is that we are all sinful. And that means his judgment is always just. You may not like God's judgments. Uh, perhaps what, what you are saying is, that it is not that God's punishment is wrong, but his assessment of humanity is wrong. You, you think people are not as bad as God says. I guess the question is, whose judgment do you trust, yours or God's? Who has the right to assess fallen humanity? Fallen humanity using their fallen intellect or the just judge of all the earth? Uh, but you may not like his punishments. Uh, you may think, sure, we're all sinful, but, but God should let some sins go. I mean, he shouldn't be so harsh on us. But notice at this point, you're not asking for justice anymore. You are asking for mercy, which we'll come to in a moment. So first point is God is just. His judgments are just. Second, Israel, Abraham's children, were called to demonstrate God's justice. Notice why God reveals his plan to Abraham. God essentially gives two reasons. First, verse 18, God is going to make Abraham into a great nation. Second, verse 19, God wants Abraham to teach his children so that great nation will keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. The whole context of this story is God's desire for Abraham to teach his children to do righteousness and justice. Now, if the stated goal of a story is to teach righteousness and justice, and we think, we read it and think, well, this isn't right, uh, there are at least three options. One, God is actually unjust and we know better. We are right and God is wrong. That's option number one. Option number two, we're misunderstanding the story in some way. Or option number three, we misunderstand justice. And this is one of those, again, one of those wonderful places where true humility looks like curiosity. Maybe I don't have all the answers and I need to be curious rather than condemning. Maybe I need to try to understand what God is saying here. Remember, God starts out this story essentially saying the theme of what is to come is justice. In particular, God wants Abraham to know justice so Abraham can teach it to his children. God wants Abraham to teach justice or righteousness so that Abraham can teach, or God wants to teach Abraham righteousness so Abraham can teach it to his children. That's why God goes on to say, here's what I've heard but rather than make a judgment based on hearsay and gossip, I'm going to investigate. What is God doing? He is training Abraham in righteousness. He is teaching Abraham how to be just so that Abraham can teach his children. 
And notice how important that is in the text. Verse 19 says, God wants Abraham to command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. It looks like Abraham teaching his children righteousness and justice is a prerequisite for God fulfilling his promise. Now, if God's promise is free and by grace, how can this act of Abraham be a prerequisite? Well, think about it like this. God promised Abraham that he, God, would bless the nations through Abraham. But if Abraham's descendants live unjustly, they will not be a blessing to the nations. If Abraham's descendants are to bless the nations, they must learn righteousness and justice. As Israel learned righteousness and justice, she would be a light to the nations. Now, if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that this didn't happen, or at least often. It didn't happen. Israel did not learn righteousness and justice, or at least they didn't practice it consistently. The the words of the prophets are often pretty harsh, but most striking for our discussion are the words of of the prophet Ezekiel in uh, Ezekiel 16. He says, not only did you, Israel, walk in their ways, the ways of the nations, and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. And not only was Israel not a light to the the nations, according to Ezekiel uh, and God in Ezekiel, she became worse than the nations. Which brings us to our next point. God is just. Israel was called to demonstrate God's justice, but failed. And so we need more than justice. We often talk about justice, but that's not, it's not really what we want. Or to put it differently, we want justice in very specific situations. I want justice when I am sinned against. I don't want justice when I am the one doing the sinning, which is the case at least some of the, some of the time. Uh, Abraham must know that Sodom is pretty bad because he assumes the conclusion of God's investigation. Abraham assumes Sodom will be judged. And so Abraham says in verse 23, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then he continues in verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It's interesting, Abraham's argument here, what is he getting at? He seems to be saying, clearly God, you can't mean this. Right? That would be sacrilege. That's, that's the implication of the phrase, far be it from you. But what Abraham actually asks for is not that God would spare the righteous in his judgment of the wicked, but that God would spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. Abraham moves from one extreme to the other, from destroying the righteous with the wicked to sparing the wicked on account of the righteous. Notice Abraham's plea in verse 24. Will you then sweep away the sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Spare it, spare the whole city. Abraham wants God to spare the whole city for the sake of fifty righteous people. And then he works his way down from there, right? You you uh, know the story from fifty to forty five to forty to thirty, twenty, and ten. Notice a couple of things about Abraham's intercession because it's it's actually the first uh, major prayer recorded in Scripture, and it's a good model for our own, right? First, Abraham draws near in verse 23. That's always a step, uh, step one of prayer, draw near to God. 
Second, Abraham pleads with God based on God's character. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What is Abraham getting at? He's saying, God, it's not like you to judge the righteous with the wicked. God himself commands judges to condemn the guilty and acquit the innocent. Surely God will apply that same standard of justice to himself. God's character as the just judge will guide him. That's what Abraham is pleading based upon. And all of our prayers are based on God's character. If nothing else, we base our prayers on God's word and the correct assumption that God will be faithful to his word. So Abraham draws near. He pleads with God based on God's character. Third, Abraham pleads with God on behalf of others. Abraham isn't praying for himself here. That's not wrong to pray for yourselves, but that's not what he's doing here. He's not even praying for Lot, his nephew, who is living in Sodom at the time, at least not directly. Abraham is praying for Sodom, for wicked Sodom. Abraham pleads on their behalf. Fourth, Abraham does so humbly. Abraham calls himself but dust and ashes in verse 27 ask God, and asks God not to be angry in verse 30. He, he recognizes that he is a mere person and he as a mere person has undertaken to speak to the Lord in verse 31 and he asks God not to be angry again in verse 32. You see, Abraham knows who he is and he knows who God is. And he knows that he has no right in himself, no claim to come into God's presence. So he comes humbly. Fifth, though, Abraham also comes boldly. Boldness and humility are not necessarily uh, opposites. Abraham comes humbly, but he comes boldly as well. He is, he is God's friend, after all. And he pleads on Sodom's behalf six times. If he was timid, he would not have come once, but, but six times, and each time upping the stakes, as it were. Sixth, Abraham comes persistently. Those six times show Abraham not giving up. He wants to get the, the best deal, as it were, for Sodom that he can. And so he works his way down to 10 righteous people. If there are just 10 righteous people in the city, will God spare it? And of course, God says yes. And finally, Abraham assumes some amount of, of corporate responsibility. He assumes that the righteousness of the few can be counted to and so outweigh the wickedness of the many. And here's the question I want you to think about at this point. All of this intercession of Abraham, did it work? Abraham pleads on Sodom's behalf. He doesn't just plead that God will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Abraham pleads that God would spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. And God says he won't. He agrees to Abraham's plea for mercy. But does it work? Well, it's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but the answer we'll see in chapter 19 is no. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed by fire from heaven. Why didn't it work? Abraham pleaded with God. God said yes to Abraham's petition. Why was Sodom still destroyed? Well, the obvious answer is that there were not 10 righteous people in Sodom. The righteousness in Sodom was not great enough for God to overlook the sin. Well, intercession throughout Scripture becomes a regular part of the prophetic role in Israel. Moses pleaded on behalf of Israel. Uh, Samuel did not cease to pray for Israel. Jeremiah, Amos, and others pray for God's people. But, you know, Israel often did not reflect God's righteousness. And God would say to the prophet, don't pray for this people. Step aside and let me wipe them out. God said to Jer Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15, 1, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. 
God said to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. And you see his point, the righteousness of another, even the greatest of men cannot deliver even God's people when they sin. And they often sinned as we continue to do today. Where does that leave us? If the intercession of Abraham, the father of the faithful, could not bring mercy to Sodom, if even the, the righteousness of Moses and Samuel could not bring mercy to Israel, what hope have you and I? The answer is we need more than justice, as we've said. And we need a greater intercessor than Moses and a greater righteousness than Samuel. We need something that could not be found in Abraham or Sodom, the intercession of one who is himself completely righteous, pleading for mercy. Scripture says that Jesus was that man. He is righteous. He did not sin. He is like us in every way except that one. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. But Jesus was punished. Not the righteous with the wicked, but the righteous one for the wicked. The cross is where justice and mercy meet because there God's justice is poured out on his son that we might receive not justice, but mercy by faith. Not only was Jesus perfectly righteous, and not only did he bear our sin, but he now continually intercedes for us. Again, Hebrews says that because Jesus rose from the dead, he is a priest forever. Hebrews 7.25 says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Abraham pleaded that if there were just 10 righteous people in Sodom, Would God spare the city? God says yes, but there were not 10 righteous people in Sodom. In fact, when it comes down to it, there were not 10 righteous people in the whole world because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there is one righteous person, and he pleads on behalf of his children. The intercession of Abraham was based on the hope of a handful of semi-righteous people that might perhaps have been in Sodom. The intercession of Jesus is based on his perfect righteousness and his offering up of himself as a sacrifice for our unrighteousness. Charles Wesley, in one of uh, the many great hymns that he wrote, Arise, My Soul, Arise, that we uh, sung just a moment ago, wrote these words, Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. That's Jesus in heaven right now interceding for us based on the merits of his blood and righteousness. Abraham didn't want the righteous to be swept away with the wicked, but what actually happened was the righteous one came to be swept away for the wicked, that the wicked might receive mercy for the sake of the righteous. And now Jesus intercedes for us at the Father's right hand on the basis of his atoning work and his indestructible life and his his intercession is effective. Do you know how much you need God's mercy? Do you know that that you are not righteous in yourself, that you, like Israel and like Sodom, deserve God's wrath? We often plead extenuating circumstances, 
but God knows the heart. Rather, plead the blood and righteousness of Jesus. God is just. Israel was called to demonstrate God's justice, but, but failed. So we need more than justice. We need mercy, and that mercy is found in the intercession of Jesus on the basis of his perfect righteousness and his atoning death for our sin. Finally, pursue justice marked by mercy. How do we respond to the righteous one who has given himself as an atonement for sin, who even now intercedes for us? He did that so that we, like Abraham, might pursue justice. Jesus is the light of the world, Scripture says, but we are called to be children of light and let our light shine. And to do that, we too must teach and pray. First, teach. There are clues in the text that God was pushing Abraham toward justice and mercy all along. In verse 19, God says his purpose for Abraham is to teach his children how to walk in the way of the Lord. Then God helps Abraham understand righteousness and justice, what that means, through his dialogue. God wants this because as Israel pursues these things, they will be a blessing to the nations and God's promise will be fulfilled. That's exactly what God says in verse 19. If Israel doesn't pursue righteousness, they will not be a blessing to the nations and God's promise will not be fulfilled. Well, God wanted Israel to do this, reflect his righteousness, to draw the nations to himself and bless them, but Israel failed. Jesus comes as the righteous one to draw all men to himself, and now we, in Christ, are called to be the light to the nations, that through our pursuit of righteousness, through our good works, our light would shine, and others would see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Jesus says that in Matthew 5.20. Peter mentions it in 1 Peter 2.12. But if this is to happen, we, like Abraham, have to teach our children and household after us to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. We must train and teach and encourage and exhort one another to keep the way of the Lord, to do what is right and just, to obey God's commandments, to keep God's word, and to walk in his ways. But we can't do that in our own strength, which means we need to pray. And God nudges Abraham toward prayer and mercy in verse 22. Verse 22, we are told that after the two angels left, Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now, translations actually differ some here for various reasons. Some think the the, the Hebrew uh, originally was meant to say, the Lord still stood before Abraham. But that seemed a bit blasphemous to people. I mean, God doesn't stand in the presence of anyone. People stand in the presence of him. But if that is what is meant, it actually makes an interesting point. The two angels leave but God stays. He stands his ground. He remains in Abraham's presence. Why? What's he waiting for? He's waiting for Abraham to intercede. It's almost as if God is setting Abraham up. He he wants Abraham to intercede for Sodom. He is testing Abraham. He wants him to plead for what is right. He wants him to plead for mercy. God is drawing us in the fellowship. God's covenant is a relationship, and God wants us to draw near and plead for mercy. And if anything, we have an even greater confidence to draw near. Again, Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That's Jesus. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have confidence to draw near. Because unlike Abraham, who hoped God would not get angry and hoped against hope that there might be ten righteous people about, we have a great high priest who intercedes on our behalf, who has opened the way to the throne of grace. And so we come with even greater boldness. 
And so pray, right? Pray for strength to live a righteous life. Pray to let your light shine before the world. Pray for wisdom to teach your children. Pray that your children would grow up walking in the ways of the Lord. And pray for your neighbor. Abraham gives us a model of how to love the unbelieving people around us, not judging them, not condemning them, not speaking bad about them, not belittling them, but interceding with the Father on their behalf. Uh, You know, we live in a country that is so divided along various lines. Make it your goal to spend less time talking bad about people and spend more time talking to the Father on their behalf. We don't have to do that with uncertainty like Abraham. If there are 50 righteous people, 40, 30, 20, 10, No, we intercede on behalf of the lost based on the righteousness of Christ. And so we say, for Jesus' sake, Lord, work in the lives of those around us. For Jesus' sake, save them. For Jesus' sake, draw people to him. For Jesus' sake, glorify your son. God is just. Israel was called to demonstrate that justice, but we need more than justice. We need mercy, and we have that in Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so in light of the gospel, pursue justice marked by mercy, interceding for the lost, based on the merits of Jesus and for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we need your spirit to work in us that we might walk in the way of the Lord and do what is righteous and just and intercede for those around us for the glory of Christ and based on his merits. We pray these things, asking for your help by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.